A quick note for my male listeners, please do not skip this episode. Yes, it's true the subject matter does not necessarily relate to you exactly, but I am confident that it does relate to someone in your life, and I know that they will be grateful if you hear what is discussed and bring this information with you to conversations with them going forward. Hello, and welcome to the September 9th, 2022 edition of TriDog Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDog, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. If you're listening to this podcast on the day that it publishes, well, today is the day that I drop off my bike with my local bike shop to be transported to the big island of Hawaii for my second ever participation in the Ironman World Championships to be held in Kona next month. Now, to say that I'm excited about this trip and the race would be a very slight understatement. Uh, No, it would be a very big understatement. It's something that I have worked incredibly hard for, first to qualify last year and then now in order to do well there. I recognize that getting to this race is obviously not something that most people are able to do, either because they are not physically able to do the training or the racing, or because they can't put in the time required to be able to get to the level of performance to be able to secure a slot. Then there is the financial burden of getting to the islands and finding accommodations, something that has become more and more difficult and more and more expensive, especially now that the event has been split into two days. I, for one, think that this is really unfortunate, because having been there before, I know that for me and my family, at least, it was very much worth it. But I also know that it was not an insignificant price to have to pay, and that has gotten worse this time around. I, for one, was really happy to see that Ironman is splitting the event, seemingly permanently, now into two days. Giving more slots to women competitors is the right thing to do. And the reality is that this has a trickle-down effect to the men as well, because with the men now having a day to themselves and not needing to share peer space with female competitors, there's been an increase in available slots for them as well, though obviously not to the same extent as the women will see since they had such a small number of slots for so long. The downside to this splitting of the race, though, remains the location of the event itself. Kona, while steeped in history and providing a very dramatic backdrop for the event, continues to have its issues. The locals are less than enamored with the event and the people who participate in it, and are actually pretty unabashed about making their sentiments known, unfortunately, often violently with their vehicles. I have referenced the price of accommodations already, an issue that is easy to explain given the limited supply and now double the demand. And given the success of the event in St. George this past spring, I continue to believe that triathletes would be better served by a rotating event. Either split the event into men and women where one sex races Kona each year in an alternating fashion and the other sex races elsewhere, or just take the whole thing on the road, similar to what they do with 70.3 Worlds, and return to Kona every so often. As it is now, Ironman is prioritizing the history of the event over the ability of a pretty good size of its athlete base to actually be able to participate, even if they are good enough to qualify, simply because of the financial implications of getting there and staying there. And to me, that's a bigger threat to the quality of a world championship than moving it from its storied location. Well, what do you think? Send me your comments or drop them in our private Facebook group that's dedicated to this podcast. I'd love to hear your opinions. On the show today, I am joined by obstetrician and gynecologist Kristen Lund. 
I have spent the better part of a year, it seems, trying to find the perfect guest to talk about menopause and its impact on endurance athletes, and for the longest time, I just kept running into dead ends. Well, Dr. Lund turned out to be the perfect person, because not only is she an athlete herself, super knowledgeable about the subject and incredibly relatable when it comes to really getting into the nitty-gritty of what women are going through during this time in their lives, but she also wanted me to be sure to tell you all that she herself is menopausal, on hormone therapy, and had three children in her premenopausal days, so she really does reflect the postmenopausal athlete that I think is the kind of athlete that's been asking me specifically to talk about this subject. Now, for my male listeners, on behalf of your wives, girlfriends, sisters, and mothers, I'm going to really ask you to stick around and have a listen to Dr. Lund as well. Yes, I know this is not a subject that you feel necessarily pertains to you. And sure, some of it might even make you feel a bit, well, uh, squirmy. But let's face it, you can't spell menopause without men. And if you want to play a role in the lives of the women in your life who are going through this or will be going through this at some point, knowing what they will be dealing with and being able to empathize, if not actually relate to them about it, is going to go a long way towards making you an ally to them. And I know that they will appreciate it. So stay tuned as I dedicate almost the entire program to this very important subject. Before I get to that, I do want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters, including my newest subscriber, Brian Villarette. Like many others, Brian decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, he could sign up to support this podcast and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out just about every month. He also took advantage of the special thank you gift for those who signed up like he did at the $10 per month level for, or of support. Because at that level, you get a lovely Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access and maybe get this cool gift as well. The URL for more information, where you can find out more about it, is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And now, as always, thank you so much just for considering For today's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by a special guest. Uh, her name is Kristen Lund. She is a colleague of mine at Denver Health Medical Center. She is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Colorado and, as I said, works uh, with me at Denver Health. She originally got her uh, medical degree at the University of California, San Diego, and is the author of several book chapters on menopause and has pre been presenting on the topic since 1998 and is really the main reason that I asked her to join me here uh, today. Kristen has also got a fairly impressive athletic biography, which uh, is another reason why I wanted her to chat with us or chat with me uh, for you to hear. She has been a longtime swimmer. She participated in water polo when she was at Stanford from 1983 to 88. She continued with uh, master swimming here in Colorado from 1997 to 2002. She also lifts weights. She uh, bikes to work. I, I, I tried convincing her to take up triathlon, but so far uh, she has been resistant, uh, saying that running is not something she uh, feels is something uh, she wants to do on a regular basis. But you never know, maybe at the end of this podcast, we'll, we'll have convinced her. Kristen Lund, I, I can't tell you how happy I am to have you here. This has been a subject that many of my listeners have asked me to take on, and I've really been looking for a long time to find the right person. And I'm really, really glad that you've agreed to come on because I can't imagine a better person to have this conversation with. So Kristen, thanks for being with me on the TriDoc podcast this morning. 
Well, thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So we're going to talk about menopause. We're going to talk about all the impact it has on women uh, and especially how it relates to their identity and their abilities uh, when it comes to endurance sport. So let's begin first with just kind of a general overview. Just what is menopause? <laughs> well, if, if you're a medical student taking the exam, menopause defined is when you have been one year, 12 months, without having a spontaneous menstrual period. Obviously, that's a retrospective diagnosis. You wake up one day and you realize it's been 12 months and you say, well, I guess I'm in menopause. More broadly, though, in terms of people living lives, it's not a binary thing. It's, it's, a, it's a transition from a time when you are reproductively capable, having periods, able to become pregnant, to a time when you are no longer menstruating, no longer producing the hormones, and no longer able to become pregnant. And that can, it can be several years. And I often encourage people to think of menopause more as like puberty. It's, it's, a, it's a journey and a transition rather than a, a single point in time. So that's the, that's the quick and dirty on what is menopause. I, I can't imagine a women who are facing menopause are going to be super excited to hear you compare it to puberty. But you know, now that that's out there. All right, well, thinking of puberty now, what happens to a woman's body during the time of menopause and then afterwards? Yeah, well, I can I can talk about what happens, particularly through the lens of being an obstetrician gynecologist. The, you know, the ovaries as they age become less and less capable of responding to all the input our brains give them to ovulate. Men don't seem to have this as much. Men are capable of fathering children uh, well into the age where women uh, go through menopause. But the, uh, the the complex interactions between the brain and the ovaries that produce um, an egg every month, which is really evolutionarily the whole point of things, becomes less and less able to happen because the ovaries get older and they don't respond well um, to hormonal input. So periods start to become more erratic and unpredictable. The ovaries will have a good day one day and a bad day the next day. And sometimes you'll get two periods in a month and sometimes you'll go a couple months without. I think that's one of the more frustrating things about menopause for women, about the transition. As the ovaries start to sputter and wear out, hormone levels in your body become very unpredictable. Estrogen levels can be high one day and low the next so women often will feel very sort of unstable in terms of how they're feeling from day to day. Combined with the unpredictable periods, that can be really rough. The fluctuation in estrogen levels affects the temperature control centers in the brain, which gives rise to the famous hot flash phenomenon. And, and that can be very disruptive, whether it's happening while you're at work um, in the day or whether it's waking you up from sleep at night. So sleep disturbance is very common uh, during menopause. And the Drop in estrogen also affects more systemic things like your insulin resistance and your body fat distribution. And women will say, you know, I'm suddenly losing muscle and I'm getting a tummy and these, you know, what is going on? I'm eating the exact same thing. I'm doing the exact same exercise and everything is changing. On the, on the plus side, many women find menopause to be liberating. You are not at risk of becoming pregnant anymore. You do not have to worry about getting your period once you're through that. You don't have to pack products wherever you go. And then there's a lot that's happening socially for many women in this age group that plays into the menopausal transition and how we all feel about it. A lot of times this is when our children are becoming grown and leaving and we're looking at, you know, maybe at the peak of our career and the peak of our earning capacity. That can be very freeing for some women. It can be a little unsettling for others. So it's, it's a big deal. 
and you're gonna you're gonna get the puberty reference more than once because uh, I think it's it's as significant as that transition was to navigate and navigate with as much grace as we can possibly do it. Now the time frame that this happens uh, tends to be women's late forties, early fifties, and that seems to be pretty standard, right, around the world. There's not uh, we, like puberty we've seen shift earlier in the Western world, but menopause has stayed pretty much the same, hasn't it? That's absolutely correct. So the age of menopause hasn't really changed in all of recorded human history. Average age is 51, 52. There are different risk factors and things that can move that needle by a year or two, but on the whole, it's been the same. What's changed, of course, is female lifespan. So that now, since we're living to 85, 86, whatever, we're going we're gonna to spend 35 years in a postmenopausal state. That's a third or more of our lives. So it's, it's not insignificant. And, you know, back in the day when average life expectancy was 45, people didn't think about menopause as much. And if you made it that far, you were revered, you know, as an elder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it, I think there was this layperson thought that the egg carton, that the ovaries were like an egg carton and that, you know, every month you removed an egg and that once the carton got empty, that that's when menopause started. But that's not really what's happening, is it? That is not. And in fact, if that was what was happening, then women who didn't ovulate, for example, if women who are on a birth control pill would be saving up their eggs and would have a later menopause. And we know that's not true. It doesn't really matter what you do with your eggs during your reproductive time. Menopause still seems to happen at the same rate for everyone. So it's not a, it's not a carton thing. It's an aging thing. You know, we, we talk some in the science world about apoptosis, which is the, the tendency of cells to just, you know, die when they're supposed to die. And I, I think there's certainly some of that at play in the ovarian failure thing. Now, you mentioned some of the effects of menopause that people experience as symptoms, but underneath there are some other effects, some other health effects. We know that as women age, there are effects on their bones that are related to uh, hormonal changes. There's also some differences in terms of health effects for heart and even different types of cancer. Can you get into some of those? Sure. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this by saying that a lot of this stuff is just a function of aging in men and women, right? As, as people get older, they get more heart disease, more cancer. And so, so some of this is colored by menopause and some of this is just baseline aging. And to be honest, I don't think we completely 100% know uh, what the contribution is for each. But uh, we do know that your bone density peaks when you're a young adult. And that is why we are always on our adolescent and young female patients to make sure that they are doing weight-bearing exercise and getting calcium because it's all downhill after that. And um, once you enter perimenopause and start losing estrogen, the uh, decrease in bone density really accelerates and people can lose a significant amount of bone mass if they don't take preventative measures. Heart disease is complicated. We know that women get heart disease at a lower rate than men, particularly in that age of the 50s and the 60s. And we think some of that is mediated by estrogen. Conversely, we know that when women are much older, over 65, and start taking estrogen after a long period of being off of it, it doesn't help them stave off heart disease and in fact can increase their risk for heart disease. So the heart disease part is complicated. And then your risk for cancer is absolutely goes up as you age. And that goes for gender neutral cancers like lung cancer, as well as sex specific cancers like ovarian and uterine cancer and breast cancer. So those, those incidences do go up with age. 
in menopause. And there are certain cancers that are related to the monthly exposure to the fluctuating hormone levels. Like I know there are certain breast cancers, for example, that uh, women can be more susceptible to if they have certain genetic predispositions because of the changing estrogen levels. Presumably those go down after menopause. Presumably they do, although you, you don't necessarily see a decrease in the breast cancer instances until women are getting older. I think that's because breast cancer takes a while to become detected. So if you have a breast cancer starting when you're 50 and it's there, even when the estrogen goes away, the cancer can progress, but you may not see it until you're 60. So again, it's a bit of a moving target between the lag time between picking up cancers and the actual presence of hormones in the body. We do know that different cancers respond differently to hormones. So there are cancers that listen to estrogen and progesterone and grow in their response. And then there are what we call receptor negative cancers that really have very little to do with hormones. And there are so many different mutations that we inherit. I don't think we've found all of them, but we do know that the BRCA genes, for example, predispose women to cancers. And those women often will choose to not start hormones and sometimes even have their own ovaries removed to decrease that risk. Right. I want to get to endurance sport, but I did want to go back and ask one question. You mentioned insulin resistance, and I know that that's something that's come up to me before as a question from somebody at a lecture I was giving. Insulin resistance is something we see across the board as people age. It's not sex-specific. Is is there something that happens more in women than it does in men? Possibly. Possibly. Um, I'm going to preface this by saying that, first of all, I'm not an endocrinologist. I'm a gynecologist. So while I understand some about hormones, um, insulin resistance is not anything I've got a doctoral degree in. But we we do know, of course, that age age and insulin resistance tend to track together. The evidence that I have seen appears to imply that it really has almost more to do with changing body composition than actual aging. So specifically how much fat we put on as we get older. And we all know people tend to gain weight as we age. And even if you don't change your training regimen, you can lose muscle and replace with fat as you age. And so your body composition becomes different. Also estradiol, the, the main estrogen hormone that comes out of the ovaries does help with insulin sensitivity. So as women lose estradiol, there's another factor that plays into insulin resistance. And that's something that men don't need to contend with because they never had high estradiol levels in the first place. So it's complicated. Yeah. I, the reason I ask is because somebody had asked me this and specifically referencing continuous glucose monitoring, which is this technology that has been brought to triathletes, healthy non-diabetic triathletes, suggesting that postmenopausal women needed to do continuous glucose monitoring. Although I was unsure why? Because I wasn't, wasn't sure how that was going to inform or allow them to do anything. But we can get to that later. I want to move on to how we can expect menopause to impact a woman's ability to train and perform an endurance sport. So does menopause, I mean, I hear from a lot of my female teammates and friends that they, they feel real effects in their ability to train and even to perform. Why is that? And what can they do to try and mitigate those issues? Sure. Well, again, a lot of factors play into this. You have to sort of figure out how to carve out and isolate the, the effects that are simply due to aging that men and women, we all face together, right? Our bones and our cartilage are not going to hold up 
infinitely. And depending on how badly we treated them when we were younger, I know my shoulders have been shot for 30 years now from the swimming. You know, that sort of stuff is only going to get worse as you age. And there's not a lot you can do about that piece. We know that people's ability to exercise aerobically is somewhat diminished as we get older. I'm old enough to remember the uh, aerobics craze of the 80s. And, you know, your target heart rate was always 200 minus your age, right? So, to get to a place of aerobic um, exercise, um, you don't need as much as high of a heart rate as when you're older as you do when you were younger. And they've studied this in menopausal women versus young women. And we do see the peak heart rates are lower and VO2 is a little lower in women who get are older. So so your, your ability to exercise is somewhat affected. But I would also point out that many women experiencing the menopausal transition have a lot of symptoms related to estrogen deficiency or fluctuating levels of estrogen, including things like sleep disruption and um, difficulty concentrating. And those those things are never going to be good for your ability to exercise. If you haven't slept well the day before, you're going to feel like crap. I know this after being up all night delivering babies. And if I try to go for a swim, it's just, it's depressing. <laughs> I still do it because it's important to do. But but I do think that that the symptoms are really hard to extricate from all of the physiology. So, because I think that's that's the issue. I, I, I'm in listening to you. I think it seems to me that's the issue because the women I'm referring to are very high level athletes. They're they're not seeing this uh, you know this slow decline that you're referring to. What they're seeing is this precipitous sort yep. of change, and it always seems to be around the time that they're going through this transition. And based on what you're saying, it's, it 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 seems to make a lot of sense that it's it's not so much the menopause itself is affecting their ability to train, but rather the symptoms related to this transition that's just impairing their ability to recover and impairing their ability to actually perform. And they have to get through that transitional period. And once they're through the transitional period and actually into this menopause period, they should essentially come back to where they were pre-menopause. Is that well, fair to say? Factoring in, factoring in age, maybe again. Yeah, I, right. I mean, given given that the fact that they'll be a couple, you know, one year, two years older, yeah. for sure. If if they're paying attention to the maintenance of their body, right? So we talked a little bit about bone density, but we didn't actually talk about muscle mass, which is another big piece of athletic performance. And you know, women lose muscle mass at an accelerated rate as they age and as they go through menopause, there are estrogen receptors in muscle. And so your muscle notices um, when you're menopausal and you effectively need to work a little harder on the piece of the strength training and the building up of the muscles in order to maintain that muscle's ability to do the work of your triathlon or whatever it is that you're choosing to do. And, and so I do think we sort of forget to pay attention to getting enough protein and doing enough strength building exercises as we get older. On top of which, there's always just the issue of maintaining muscle mass for the sake of being able to function and walk and not fall down as we get older and our bones get less dense and we don't want to fall and break a hip, right? So yes, you can make it through the menopausal transition and maybe feel better from a hot flash and sleep standpoint, but you've still got to pay attention to, to what your weight is doing and what your muscle mass is doing. And that takes a little more work as we get older. In the absence of estrogen, is the just the strength training and the added protein in the diet sufficient to maintain mass or even build that mass back a little bit? 
because like, you know, as we know, as men age, they, they also, the testosterone decreases and they're also unable to build significant amounts of mass, but they can maintain their mass. Probably I'm guessing a little bit better than women can, but can women just by doing the work and increasing protein, can they maintain or even build that mass back in the absence of the estrogen? Yeah. You know, I'm going to be honest and say, I don't know of any studies that show that definitively, right? We can, we can use anecdotes, we can watch people doing their thing, but until you take two sets of women, give one, you know, estrogen and not the other and watch what happens to their muscles, it's, it's really impossible to know. So I'm going to be honest with you and say that while it's intuitive that losing estrogen would make it harder on your muscles because there are estrogen receptors in the muscle, I don't have any proof of that. So I don't want to overthink. But we do know from studies, I have seen studies on postmenopausal women that strength training is beneficial. It it, it increases muscle mass. Yeah, it definitely uh, does improve strength and improves endurance in not the kinds of things we're talking about, not triathlon, but I've seen studies on postmenopausal women for things like walking uh, and for daily life activities that strength training is absolutely 100% beneficial. So we can extrapolate to triathlon and say it's going to have the same thing. And this is something I've been proselytizing on for quite a while for older athletes cross-gender, that strength training is so important. And just one more piece of evidence to suggest how important it is for women, especially to really help them maintain their endurance and maintain their ability to perform in the sport for a long time, get that strength training done and do it, really build it into your if you haven't already built it into your training before menopause to make it a very significant part of your training afterwards. And again, we're not talking, you know, when I talk about strength training for triathletes, I'm not talking about going to the gym and becoming whatever the female version of Arnold Schwarzenegger is. I'm talking about going and and doing the kinds of exercises that are about building strength and not necessarily building huge mass. So that that's super yes. important. I'm really glad to hear you say that. Now, Can women expect, if they maintain their strength, if they maintain their bone density by doing some of the things we've talked about, can they expect to to still see maybe not improvements because as we're older, as we get older, we know that we're not going to continue to get faster necessarily, but they could continue to to see improvements within their age group as long as they continue to put in the work and and doing endurance sport, right? I mean, they can still expect to see the same kinds of results from training as they saw before menopause. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned age groups because that sort of then takes that whole aging thing out of the equation, right? If you're competing against a bunch of other 65-year-old women and you're taking better care of yourself, whether that means eating more protein and doing more exercise, or if you need it, taking hormones so that you can feel better, if you're working harder than the other guy, you're going to move up in your rankings, you know, age for age. Will you get personal records? I think a lot of that depends on what baseline you've started from. But we do see, you know, women coming back to my college roommate made the Olympic trials when she was 43, after a decade out raising kids, and was able to come back and come close to her personal records. And, you know, obviously, 43 is not menopause, but but we do see people coming back and doing even better because they, they're taking better care of themselves. All right. Now, you and I both have discussed at length the fact that there are many people, some qualified, most unqualified, uh, to tell women what they should and shouldn't be doing and giving answers for menopausal changes. So so let's talk a little bit about what the truths are. And you've mentioned already a little bit about postmenopausal diet. There are several people out there espousing that uh, postmenopausal women need to cut 
carbs, like dramatically because of this insulin resistance and everything else. So what is your, what are your thoughts and, and what do you tell patients about postmenopausal diet? Sure. Again, not a licensed nutritionist. However, remember all, all carbs are not bad carbs, right? So cutting carbs globally is not necessarily what your body needs. You, you need a certain amount of carbohydrate in order to better metabolize your fat and your protein and allow your cells to work well. So I would give this advice to anybody, you know, it's, it's all very fun to have a nice piece of white bread, but much better if you're going to have carbs to have the complex carbohydrates like, you know, whole wheat bread and vegetables. And I'm a whole food person. I don't take supplements. And I really think that ideally you get everything that you need from a diet rather than taking supplements. Cutting carbs, maybe because we are a little more insulin resistant. You don't want to flood your system with some high glycemic foods if you're already battling insulin resistance and trying to maintain your weight and your muscle mass. So I don't think that should be taken as dogma to just cut carbs across the board, but it's probably time if you haven't already done this to look at what are the carbs that you're taking in and are they carbs that are going to really nourish your body over the long haul. That doesn't mean that I don't sneak a chocolate bar once in a while in the afternoon to get me through clinic, but that's a personal failing. <laughs> it's not something I would advise everybody to do in the middle of the afternoon to get them to clinic. All right. Well, look, I mean, the elephant in the room is clearly Stacey Sims. I have made no secret about some of my disagreements with some of the things that she says. However, as a male, I am not going to be taken seriously. Uh, and so I have resisted from really engaging in a lot of the things that she has to say. I know that a lot of the women who listen to me uh take what she says as the gospel. And in a lot of the things that she says, I, I happen to agree. I, I think that a lot of the things that she's done, a lot of things that she says are are really positive and, and really important. However, I do think that she tends to be a little bit dogmatic about things that are not necessarily in line with the evidence. I've spoken specifically about things like her views on birth control pills and how she is very vociferous about women not using birth control, which I think is not really fair to say. The evidence doesn't support her views and she has been resistant to people questioning her. So, Kristen, you're a female, you're a woman, uh, a woman who's an athletic, a woman who is schooled on the science of the menopause. Uh, Stacey Sims feels very strongly about hormone replacement therapy. Tell us. I know that there's a lot of controversy about hormone replacement therapy. Let's, let's start first. W what is hormone replacement therapy? What does it do? And what is sort of the controversy? Right. So, and I will tell you, the controversy is even around the name, you know, language these days, you got to be careful. People, some people don't like the word replacement. It implies you're missing something and that's negative. So it's hormone therapy. I will probably slip ah. up and call it hormone replacement therapy because I've been calling it that since I went to medical school. So, you know, forgive me for that. So hormone therapy is essentially a mini version of a birth control pill. All right. So birth control pills were designed to keep you from getting pregnant. Turns out they're great for a bunch of other stuff. Parenthetically, I'd never heard of Stacey Sims before. We started talking about this two weeks ago, so I've, I've only had a brief overview of her work. But she reflects, I think, uh, a broad societal viewpoint that to rely on synthetic hormones implies that a woman is somehow failing to accept slash cope with the, the state of being female, which I, I take great issue with that because I think hormone therapy and birth control have saved kajillions of female lives over the, over the time that they've been invented. 
Anyway, that's just my little soapbox. Hormone replacement therapy is taken by women who are suffering from symptoms of the menopausal transition, right? So they sort of even out the unpredictability of hormones that happens when your ovaries can't decide from one day to the next if they're going to show up for work. And so by taking hormone replacement therapy, you can ameliorate the hot flashes, sleep better. There is, we didn't, we don't even have the time to go into urogenital atrophy symptoms. Maybe that's for another podcast, but vaginal dryness and pain with intercourse and urinary urgency all are made better by hormone replacement therapy. Now, if you're not suffering from any of those things, by all means, don't take hormone replacement therapy. But I think a lot of women really struggle and don't do well during the transition and feel crappy because they think that to take hormones would be a cop-out or that they would be a failure or that someone like Dr. Sims is telling them that they shouldn't do it. And, and I disagree with that. I think it can really, really help people feel better. Now, some of the controversy is also based on the fact that HT, I guess we're calling it now, HT was really, when HT came out when I was in early residency, it was huge. It was shown to be very positive. But quickly, as more and more women were on it, there were studies that started to come out that showed some potential negatives. And as I recall, the negatives were increases in heart disease and potentially increases in cancers. Was there cancer increases too, or am I making that up? Yeah. So I think probably the biggest study you're referring to is one that was called the Women's Health Initiative that was published in 2002. And it was a big randomized trial of women taking oral hormone replacement therapy. Now there's different kinds now, but back then there were just pills. Now we've got patches and creams and all sorts of fun stuff. And that's, again, probably beyond the scope of the podcast. But they, they took a lot of women, average age was 63, and gave them hormones or not. And sort of watched what happened to them over, I mean, the average time of follow-up was five, seven years. And indeed, there was a slight uptick in heart attacks and breast cancers in women who took estrogen and progesterone hormone therapy. The overall risk from the hormones was about eight incidents per 10,000 woman years of use. So if you put 10,000 women on a pill for a year, you know, people are going to get heart attacks in both groups. But instead of 32 heart attacks, there were 40 heart attacks, if that's making sense. I don't want to get too yeah, into the weeds absolutely. on that. What's really interesting is that 65-year-olds are not the people who walk into my office complaining about menopausal symptoms, right? They're 50-year-olds or people in their late 40s or early 50s. Um, those women, when you looked at them in that study, didn't have an increase in heart attacks. They didn't have an increase in breast cancer. And also the women who didn't take progesterone pills because they'd had a hysterectomy and only needed to take estrogen they didn't have an increase in breast cancer. And everybody had a decrease in broken hips. And we do know that a hip fracture is a huge predictor of not only your length of life, but your quality of life going forward. So estrogen clearly continues to help with bone density and does have a minimal risk when it comes to heart disease, depending on how old you are when you're taking the hormones. So again, it's always more complicated than the press likes to make it sound. Right. And we can't, we can't obviously give advice on this program because it's going to be so dependent on individuals and there's going to be all kinds of circumstances. But in general, hormone therapy is most beneficial for people who are really suffering from the symptoms. 
but also has these longstanding benefits in terms of bone density, that it, it decreases demineralization of the bones, decreases fractures in both the hips and the spine, and increases quality of life in the long term for those women who otherwise would be affected. I think one of the questions that you probably can't answer, and I, I know that I can't answer for any of any individual listener, is how much benefit do the hormones give over the fact that the women who are listening to me are likely exercising regularly? We know that weight-bearing exercise preserves bone density to a degree, although not as much as bone density and as, not as much as exercise plus hormone therapy. So that, that will be something yes. you have to talk about with your own doctor and Absolutely. make your own decision. Uh, but no question, if you're really suffering from these symptoms, you don't have to. Hormone therapy can be extremely beneficial. Now, if you start hormone therapy to, to put these symptoms at bay, I'm assuming you have to stay on it because if you stop, you're just going to get right back into those symptoms, correct? Well, I mean, not necessarily, right? So, the, so this whole thing is a journey and a transition. And, you know, most women when they're 80 don't have hot flashes anymore, um, even if they've never been on hormones. Sometimes they feel a little warm, but the, but the severity of the symptoms tends to decrease as we get older. And so I just, in my patients, we reevaluate once a year if they maybe want to try to cut the dose in half and see how they are. If they want to go to, you know, maybe take it every other day or do something slightly different, I'm all about that. On the other hand, if they still feel crappy, they can go right back on and, you know, reevaluate again the next year. I do think the American College of OBGYN and the National Menopause Societies do recommend trying to be off of this sometime within 10 years of transitioning through menopause, because then you're up in that 63-year-old age group where, you know, there may be more risk to your heart and breast cancer and blood clots and some of the things that we see in that study. Having said that, I still willingly provide vaginal estrogen to anyone who wants it because vaginal dryness and pain uh, with intercourse, those sorts of things don't get better with age. And, and if you're 75 and in a healthy relationship and you want to use your vagina, I'm all about that because the, the topical estrogens don't carry the same risk. And I think that's an important distinguish, uh, distinction to make is that topical estrogen is considered safe for almost everybody. I think that's hugely important. And I thank you for, for bringing that up. Now, I, I have a, a, a bunch too, of... Right? <laughs> Part of me? Oh, yeah, helps on the bike. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I actually had somebody ask about that. So I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's really important. I had somebody mention that people, a lot of older women are always having trouble with bike seats and uh, it's because they're uncomfortable. And to, to note that uh, topical, you said topical or, or vaginal estrogen well, can help with that? Yeah, we consider the vagina to be an extension of your skin. So yes, vaginal. Well, no, the reason uh, I ask about that is because that, I don't know if if we talk about vaginal estrogen, I'm assuming we're talking about inserting something as yes. opposed to topical, which, yeah. Yeah, so, so is there a difference or like, can, is there a topical cream that you just put on the outside or is there only a, a vaginal that you insert? Well, you insert it and then it's got sort of what we call a field effect. So it will, it will sort of help the entire vagina. The labia, everything. Basically, if it's okay. a cream or a pill, you, paste, you place it at night and it sort of dissolves yeah. and you stand up in the morning and it sort of comes out. There's also a ring that sort of releases hormone over three months. It's much neater, but it, it helps through the whole area. It helps your bladder. It helps the external genitalia and it helps the vagina. And that's huge. A lot of women suffer with, especially if they've had children, they suffer with some issues related to incontinence and pelvic floor issues. And you and I chatted uh, a couple of weeks ago about the use of pessary rings that, that can yes. help women 
struggle a lot with long distance triathlon events with, you know, bladder incontinence. And, and these are things that they need to know because it's not talked about. Uh, and it should be. So topical estrogens, uh, discuss with your, your own physician. I mean, be open with your physician, tell them you're having difficulties on discomfort on your bike seat. Tell them you're having issues with some bladder incontinence or, or just issues with having to pee more on the bike. And then you want to, and you want to be able to get through your, your 56 mile or, or, I mean, obviously most of us can't get through 112 miles without peeing at least once. So, uh, but whatever it is, yeah, exactly. These are things that, that y- you should feel comfortable talking to your physician about and getting relief for. Okay. I, I have a bunch of questions from a couple of different listeners and friends of mine, uh, who are right now, uh, dealing with menopause. And one of them you just alluded to, and, and that is how long can women expect symptoms to last knowing, knowing full well that this is going to be variable from person to person. But I was a little bit surprised to hear you say women in their eighties don't get hot flashes anymore. That suggests to me that women in their seventies might still be getting them. Yeah, you, you know, again, the puberty analogy, right? So everyone's experience is different and sometimes wildly different, right? There's there's kids who still have acne in their 20s, right? And other kids who finished with that at 14. And I think, you know, we need to apply that same sort of tolerance for variation to our women who are moving through menopause. Absolutely, there are 70-year-olds who still get hot flashes. By and large, as a group, people's hot flashes get better the further away they get from that menopausal transition. But there are still going to be some women who are very symptomatic um, after 10 years into menopause and others who are going to be fine. And I, my approach in my practice is to validate everybody's symptoms. If you're symptomatic, you're symptomatic. And, and I'm not going to make you feel guilty or a failure. That is, that is what your body is that you live in. And we should talk about that. So yes, there are some women who are still symptomatic. There are others who aren't. How long can women expect the worst of the symptoms to last? In, again, in gen, on average. You know, in general, probably five years, five years after menopause is, is as a sort of pick a number out of the, out of the air. Hard to know because the most symptomatic ones tend to go on hormones. So what would have happened to them if they didn't? You know, you need a randomized so, route. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. So I have a question here that I think we've kind of touched on and answered. But, you know, the question here is from a woman who I think is in the middle of started her menopause and so is suffering from symptoms. But she asks, what is the optimum balance between training and recovery for menopausal women, especially those who are training for long distance endurance events? And that suggests to me that menopausal, she believes that menopausal women have different physiology from pre-menopausal women. And I'm not sure that that's the case. I think the better way to rephrase that question would be, what's the optimum balance between training and recovery for older women, right? Would you you agree? I mean, I'm not sure that menopausal and pre-menopausal is the way to define this. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree. Although, you know, this is sort of getting out of my wheelhouse, because, um, you know, my approach to exercise is, if I'm not recovering enough, I see that because I don't, do well um, if I'm exercising too frequently. We know recovery times go up for everyone as they age. I think there's physiologic studies that show that. And so just to have mercy on your body and, and figure it out has always been my approach. But I, I've been, it's made, been made very clear to me by a couple triathletes since I started talking to you is that that is not what women want to hear. They want guidelines and what is the rule and how long do I need before I'm recovered? As a gynecologist, I can't possibly answer that to anyone's satisfaction. But to your question, again, I do think that if women are optimized through their menopause, if they're feeling good and they're sleeping well, 
I don't see a reason why being female and being menopausal per se is going to drastically alter how you approach exercise and recovery. I think any variation between menopause, not menopause, man, woman, age is going to be vastly outpaced by your own individual physiology, right? Which we haven't even talked about. Some people need more time to recover and others don't. So I I would advise her maybe not to overthink it and do what her body is telling her to do in terms of recovery. Yeah. And and I'm getting... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm getting it. Yeah, I know, right? That's, we're, we're all bad at that, men and women. But the, the the sense I'm getting from this whole conversation is that she shouldn't be thinking necessarily that things are different for her because she's in menopause or in this perimenopausal period, but rather she just has to recognize that her symptoms are impacting her ability to sleep and how she's feeling, and therefore it might just take longer for her to recover. There's no hard and fast to it. She's just going to have to pay attention to her body, how she's feeling, and then just go with that. There's going to be days she's going to feel great. She should push it. And if she's not feeling great, she's going to have to take it a little more easy, but there's not going to be any hard and fast to this. The advice you give all triathletes, I hope. It is, it is, but it's, it's hard. I got to tell you as a coach, as a coach, it's incredibly difficult to get people to listen to their bodies. They want to be told. And so I do spend a lot of time as a coach telling people today's your day off. Don't do anything. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get messages from people who, you know, I'll get messages from one of my athletes that will say, oh, you've given me this thing I have to do today, but I really don't feel up to it. And if I don't tell them just, okay, we'll move it to a different day. Today, you're going to, you're going to rest they'll try to push through it and not recognizing that it's really not going to benefit them. So yeah, I, 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 I totally get where she's coming from because I'm a triathlete and I'm exactly the same way. So, so another question here was how do we most effectively modify our training modalities to maintain our lean body mass for greater performance gains while also maintaining our endurance and speed. And I think we've addressed that a little bit in terms of increasing strength work, increasing protein, making sure that uh, we're careful with our diet. This woman specifically who, who asked this question is a role model. Her name is Courtney. She's a absolute role model for other women uh, in this period of her life because she does a ton of strength work. She's always posting about it on social media, showing herself doing strength work, good quality strength work. She eats very well. So she's, she's already doing all the right things. And I think your point earlier to the fact that strength work is of such importance to women in this stage is going to resonate with her. And, and, and I think she's going to feel satisfied to hear that because she's clearly doing the right thing when it comes to that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I will, you mentioned a uh, weight bearing exercise. And I just wanted to clarify that I, I think many people think that running is a weight bearing exercise. Actually, it's, it's not. I mean, you are technically bearing your body weight. But when people talk about doing studies with weight bearing exercise, helping bone mass, they're not talking about walking or running. They're, they're talking about things that make your muscles think that you are heavier than you are. And that means lifting weights or, you know, heavy gardening, moving dirt. I mean, it doesn't have to be going to the gym, as you said. But but strength training really means going out and putting a load on your muscles that wouldn't otherwise be there. So I just wanted to clarify that because I do get a lot of women. Uh, say, that's I fascinating because I... Well, that is fascinating because a lot of I, I that's actually news to me. I thought running was considered weight bearing because it was putting a load on the bones and muscles of the lower extremities. So that's that's really interesting. You mentioned earlier how menopause is a time of change, uh, not just uh, physiologically, but also emotionally, socially. And one of the women, my good friend Juliet, wrote exactly that. And her question was, 
how can a woman know what is attributable to menopause and what is attributable to everything else that's going on? Because she feels like emotionally she's, she's so much more vulnerable to everything else that's going on. And she finds herself constantly wondering, well, am I just being completely <laughs> torn apart by all of the stuff going on around me or is this internal? Right. And we do know that, you know, let's just go there and talk about mental health. First of all, things like depression and anxiety are way underdiagnosed throughout society. I mean, baseline, we don't talk about those things enough. That's starting to get better. But the incidence of anxiety and depression does go up in women of this age group. And so it's it's possible there's a component for some women of actual depression, anxiety that is best treated through behavioral health modalities, right? So there's that. But I do think a lot of us become vulnerable, again, because of just what's going on in our lives. It can be complicated to say goodbye to your fertile years. I love it. I, you know, I spent enough time with a child stuck to my body in some way or fashion that I kind of find this all liberating. But, but I do know that many women have a good chunk of their identity wrapped up in their ability to raise a family. And when those children grow up and don't need you as much, that's, that's vulnerable or God, I mean, my adolescent daughter, don't get me started. I mean, I I get vulnerable just because it's the interactions with her are very complicated. So again, multifactorial. Puberty analogy again, right? Is it the mean girls at school or is it your hormones or, you know, how much of what, how I'm feeling is physiologic, how much is psychologic and how much is situation dependent. And you can only control what you can control. So is your friend taking good care of herself? Is she sleeping well? Is she eating well? And the rest she can break out. Does, would a therapist help? Would talking about antidepressants help? Or would just zenning out and knowing that this is how life is and it's not about you know, that you're a bad person. It's just about what's going on in your life. And now I'm sounding really like yeah. hokey. No, no, I think it's great. I think it's, I think it's basically just kind of having the ability to forgive the ability to let yourself be who you are. And also to have the insight that, you know what, there is a lot going on and it's okay to feel this way. And it, you don't necessarily need an explanation for why there's enough going on to explain it. So it doesn't have to be attributable to menopause. It doesn't have to be attributable to whatever. It's just, there's a lot going on right now and it's just a lot to bear. And if you, you know, recognizing that you need that help is okay. So yeah, I, I don't think that she's in that position. I think she was just asking the question of, you know, there's all this stuff going on. Like, how do I know, uh, you know, how do I know what's related to what? And I think your point is, uh, is very valid. And that, and that's just that, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. It doesn't necessarily yes, have to be attributable to anyone. I, I think a final question and a good one to end on is, are there any good places to find support uh, either from other women who might be dealing with these issues or from people like yourself who uh, are experts in this and, and are willing to provide evidence-based answers? Uh, is there, I'm sure I listen, I'm sure there's lots of places where you could find not great advice, but are there any reputable sources? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I think the first thing every woman may should consider doing is get, finding themselves a good gynecologist right? So I've, I've always said throughout my career to my patients, usually it's the other way around. They're coming to me for their annual checkups. And as they get older, they need their cholesterol checked and they need a colonoscopy, things I don't do. And I always joke, everybody needs a gynecologist and a real doctor in their life. 
So, I mean, I do have a medical degree, but it's just the way I put it. But I think in menopause, it may be the reverse. If you've been seeing your family doctor or your internal medicine doctor all this time and you have questions about menopause and you want advice, come to somebody who's actually trained and knows the science and can have that conversation with you about your personal medical history, your risk factors, what you're doing, because so much of it is so individual. I will, I don't want to plug anything in particular, but one of my former partners um, at the university who delivered my children, so we were very close, has written a book on this. It's called The Menopause Manifesto by Dr. Jennifer Gunter. So something they might be. Oh, Jen Gunter. Well, Jen Gunter is, uh, Jen Gunter is very popular amongst physicians on Twitter and has a lot of very, yeah, she's very well known. Well, she's well known amongst a certain cohort of people, but uh, I didn't realize you were classmates. So yes, I I know of her book and I've heard very high praise for her book. So I will link to that uh, in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. We don't, we don't a hundred percent agree on everything, but I think what we do agree on is the, is the, it's important to look to the science and do things that are actually evidence-based rather than, you know, doing other things. And to be clear, we weren't classmates. We were faculty together. She was trained in Canada. Ah, got it. You know, she's yeah. a fellow Chinook. So, yeah. Um, ah, yeah. Oh, that's right. That's I didn't know that as well. Yeah. Another so, reason. Anyway, but I think having an individual relationship with someone who's comfortable talking about this stuff and who has the time to do it and isn't trying to squeeze that in on top of everything else, the 15 minute primary care visit needs to cover. Just take that extra time for yourself and, and get a doctor who can talk to you about it. Terrific advice, Kristen. I can't thank you enough. This has been a terrific conversation. I am certain that my listeners will really appreciate it. And before I even launch into this segment, I am going to tell the men not to give up on it because every man has a woman in their life that, I mean, even if it's not a partner, they have a sister or a mom and they really need to hear all of this because uh, it's important. And it's important that we are there as allies and there to support the women in our lives. And knowing what they're going through is a big part of that. So I hope that they've stuck around through all of this. And I know that my female listeners will have. I'm sure that they will have enjoyed it as much as I have. Kristen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to have this fantastic conversation and discussion about menopause. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff. Along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the Tri-Doc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash TriDoc Podcast. 
The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.